We're going to read together the first six verses, Psalm chapter 34. Verses 1 through 6, we will read those responsively, so we'll begin reading together in verse 2. We'll read together 2, 4, and 6. I'll read alone 1, 3, and 5. The Bible says there, I will bless thee at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He heard me. And delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. This morning I'd like to preach a sermon simply entitled this, O magnify the Lord, O magnify the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do pray today that you'd help us to understand uh, exactly what you have for each one of us uh, out of your word. Lord, coming in the door today, many people are carrying different burdens and trials, and Lord, I pray that today the sermon would be a fresh reminder to all of us uh, what it is we're to do during those times. Lord, uh, there are people today here that have tried living life a selfish way, and they've run into some brick walls. I pray that the sermon today would remind them exactly how it is they are to get out of those predicaments. And Lord, I pray that today your name would be lifted up and edified above all. God, we don't want to be here just playing church. We don't want to be here just wasting time, punching a spiritual clock. Lord, we want to be here to gain uh, understanding and favor in your sight. And so, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit's presence would be here and move in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Desperate times in the life of David had called for very, very desperate measures. King Saul had sent to kill his son-in-law in his very house. David, um, uh, in that time of uh, trial, uh, had his wife, who was the king's daughter, lie to the king's men about David. And they told, uh, she told the men, David's sick. He's in bed sick. You can't come in. And they forced their way in and found not David, but found what, they, uh, what appeared to be some kind of a scarecrow or such in the bed made to look like David. David had bought himself time to escape out a side window and run from his father-in-law and his men who were attempting to kill him. David was scared for his life. In that escape, he left with nothing more than the clothes on his back and just a few men who had been deemed outlaws because they had chose to side with David and defend this king's estranged son-in-law. David was on the run. And in David's time of fear, David failed to trust God and to reach out to God to help him. Rather, what David did next was he committed a series of sins that got him into a whole lot of trouble and just about got David killed. Just about got him killed. In fact, realistically, we're going to look at this in just a minute, David should have died because of some poor decision making on his point, on his part rather. The question today for you and I is this, Who are you magnifying? Who am I magnifying? Am I looking to promote my cause, my name, my well-being? Are you looking to 
elevate or magnify your cause and your name and your financial status and your well-being? Or are you living life trying to promote His name, His uh, His cause, and the well-beings of others around you? What we find in the life of David here, in the story of David, is that when we magnify ourselves, we bring great hurt and pain into our world. And that pain and hurt does not just affect you or me, but it affects everyone around us. Everyone around us. By way of introduction this morning, we're going to spend the majority of the sermon talking about what happens when we magnify the Lord. But by way of introduction, and in order to give the backstory of Psalm 34, let's take just a moment look at what happens when we magnify ourselves. Hold your places there in Psalm 34 and flip backwards to the left in your Bibles to 1 Samuel Chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. And we find the backstory here of uh, the 34th Psalm that was written. What we find is exactly uh, the predicament that David got himself in after he fled from the window and after he uh, took off and left uh, uh, while being chased by Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 21, we find in verse 1, the Bible says, Then came David to Nob, the, uh, uh, then came David, David to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? So Ahimelech, the priest, immediately becomes suspicious of David. What are you doing here? And what are you doing all by yourself? Look at verse 2. And David said unto Ahimelech, the priest, The king hath commanded me a business. Lie. And it said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Again, lie. Now, uh, therefore, uh, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hollow bread. If the young men have kept themselves uh, at least from women and uh, and David answered the priest and said to him of a truth women have been kept from us about 3 days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is a manner common yea though it were sanctified this day in the vessel so David uh, flees to the right place but goes there and does the wrong thing he does the wrong thing what does David do when he gets to the high priest He says to him, I'm on a covert mission for the king. He sent me here and I left so quick. I left so speedily. I didn't have time to get food to eat. I didn't have time to get a weapon to carry. I didn't have time to get a change of clothes. He said, I need you to feed me because me and my men are starving. And Amalek is not necessarily believing him. But David does his best to sell it. And Ahimelech, the priest, tells him, he says, all we have are five loaves of showbread. Showbread. That was the holy bread that the priest ate. And David basically took it from him. If you read on down in the passage, you find that uh, David actually lied about how, how, how recent it was they had been with women. Now, we know David had just left 
the presence of his wife. Now, we don't know if David was with his wife in the sense of marital relations, but uh, it, it's, it's, uh, uh, one could guess that maybe in the last three days he had been, and so he was probably stretching the truth there, probably lying there. And David uh, turned around and said, uh, not only do I want you to give me bread, but he said, I need you to give me a weapon. And you read on down, he asked Ahimelech for a weapon, and the only weapon they had was Goliath's sword. Now, we know about Goliath's sword, right? David had taken the rock and hit the giant in the head. He ran over to Goliath, little teenage boy David, and he pulled Goliath's gigantic sword out of his sheath, and he chopped off the head of the giant. And that sword had become sort of a museum piece here, there, rather there in where Ahimelech was as the high priest. And David said, I need the sword. We see, first of all, that when we magnify ourselves, we justify our sin. We justify our sin. You want to go around and make a big deal out of you, and you want to justify, uh, you want to make a big deal out of what you're trying to accomplish. And what happens is that you're trying to get to an end, and so then you want to justify the route to get there, even if it's sinful. It's sinful. Someone told me one time, they said, where you live and where truth is uh, will either, either if you are living below what you believe to be true, you will either bring your living up to what you believe or you will, uh, you will bring what you believe down to match where you're living and you will find a way to bring those two together sooner or later. And I'm here today to tell you that if you're doing something that's wrong, is it because maybe you're magnifying you instead of magnifying the Lord? We see that David did that here. The second thing I see here that David did or that sin does when we magnify ourselves is that our judgment becomes clouded. Our judgment becomes clouded. Look down with me at verse 10 of 1 Samuel 21. So now David has Goliath's sword. Let's see where David goes. And David arose and fled that that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now let's stop there for a minute. Gath. Where was Goliath from? Goliath was from Gath. So David has Goliath's sword, which is, by the way, a very large sword. This sword belonged to a man that was ten feet tall. This was no ordinary sword. If you knew Goliath, you recognized that sword the moment you saw it. And David runs to Gath. Look at verse 11. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing one of another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see, this man is mad. Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I, uh, have I need of, of mad men? That ye have brought this fellow to play the mad man in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David here is um, confused. He's scared. He's living life his way. He's not turning to the Lord. He lies to the high priest several times in just a couple of sentences. He gets bread for him to eat and for the men that are waiting in the wing to eat. He gets a sword that belongs to Goliath. And then he turns around and he goes to the only place that he probably really wasn't that safe. He goes to Gath. He goes to Gath. 
And I'm sitting there, and I, I, if I could say to David, David, don't go to Gath. What are you doing? You have Goliath's sword. They're going to catch you. You're a fugitive there. If you go there, they will kill you. And that's where David goes. Have you ever been there where you look back at a situation, you, you scratch your head and say, what was I thinking doing that? Anybody ever, ever felt that way? What in the world was I doing? When we're living in sin, common sense flies right out the door flies right out the door. What happens is that we put ourselves in harm, harm's way. What happens is that we justify our sin and then our judgment, well, it becomes clouded. But the third thing we see that happens when we magnify ourselves is that we jeopardize the well-being of others. Verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 22, you find David running to a cave. In that cave is where he would write the 34th Psalm. God had delivered David out of the hands of Achish. I believe that David turned to the Lord in that time of capture and said to the Lord, I need your help. And God led him to act like a lunatic. He began to uh, spit on his beard and he began to claw at the gate, look, make himself look like a lunatic. And they let him out. They let him out. The Lord was protecting him. He heads to this cave where his family and his men are there and he writes the 34th Psalm. But the story is not over. You see, because David's, all of David's chickens had not come home yet to roost. Look down at verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 11. Then the king, speaking of Saul, sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob, and they came all of them to meet the king. There was a man named Doeg that worked for King Saul that happened to be there that day with Ahimelech when David came. King Saul asked his men, has someone aided and abetted the criminal David? Doeg, who had reunited with Saul, says, Ahimelech did. And Saul said, what? Bring Ahimelech to me. So all of Ahimelech and their men gather. There to have a meeting with Saul. And Saul is hot. He's so hot, Ahimelech tries to defend himself. Saul won't hear it. He turns and tells his men to kill the priest. And they won't do it. So then David turns to Doeg, the man that had been there the night David arrived. And in verse 18, the Bible says, in 1 Samuel twenty-two eighteen, And the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priests and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. All these men were murdered. Now let me just say that David doesn't take all the blame. Saul gets a share of it, doesn't he? Saul gets the lion's share of it. But had, had uh, David not lied to Ahimelech, is it possible Ahimelech would have never died? You see, when we magnify ourselves, we justify our sin, our judgment becomes clouded, and then what happens is we begin to jeopardize the well-being of others. I think of people who struggle with addictions. They put substances in their body that are harmful. Their, clout, their judgment becomes clouded. How many parents have abused a child because they were under the influence of alcohol or drugs? How many parents have neglected a child in order to 
in order to get a fix and their child is left to be hurt. How many parents have watched as their adult children have uh, allowed their judgment to be clouded by sin and they've gone and picked up some disease that's put them in the grave? You see, when we choose to magnify ourselves, not only do we hurt us, but we hurt others around us. But this morning, I don't want to focus solely on what happens when we magnify ourselves. I'd like for us to turn our attention to what happens when we magnify the Lord. You see, because when we magnify the Lord and we lift Him up and we hold Him high and we put our attention on Him and we make Him number one in our life, then wonderful things happen. I believe this evening, or rather this morning, that when we magnify the Lord, we bring great joy to ourselves. And we allow God to do a work, a magnificent work in our lives. I'd like for us to look at the 34th Psalm this morning and see five positives, five positives that the Lord provides when we magnify His authority in our lives. Number one, notice, when we magnify the Lord, He cheers up the pessimist. He cheers up the pessimist. Look back with me at Psalm chapter 34 and look at David's upbeat, cheered up attitude as he sits in the cave and he writes this psalm. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her a boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt. Let us exalt His name together. Some people struggle with seeing the positives in life. They walk through life and you ask them, you having a good day? And they drop their head and they say, what's so good about it? You say, uh, how are you doing? And then you walk away ten minutes later and you go, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm not going to ask that person how they're doing. Because, oh boy, they, they told me. They really told me how they were doing. They told me all the bads in their life. And listen, we ought to be here to bear one another's burden. But listen, every time someone asks you how you're doing, uh, find something positive that's going on in your life. Don't always focus on the negative. Let me say this morning that if you struggle with being negative, David had every reason to be negative. Can you imagine being uh, uh, in David's shoes? You try to do everything right. You have uh, honored your, your, your dad. You've honored the Lord in the way you've behaved growing up. And then uh, you were called upon by your country to fight the giant Goliath. And you went out there and you destroyed him. And then uh, the king put you in charge of the military. And you went out and you led all kinds of successful military operations all the while while walking with the Lord. You came back and the king said to you that if you want to be my son-in-law, go out and kill a hundred Philistines that are enemies of the Lord and bring back the evidence. And so David did that and he was made son-in-law to the king hoping that somehow that would ease tensions between him and a jealous uh, king and now his father-in-law. And then uh, the king is upset so he goes in the presence of the king with his harp and he plays his harp trying to calm the king down and not once but twice a javelin is picked up and thrown in David's direction and David is forced to flee out of his presence. My friends, David had every reason to be a pessimist. But when he turned to the Lord and he magnified the Lord, God cheered him up. Listen, I don't know um, what hard time you're going through right now. I don't know what, um, what uh, negative spirit you have. But I'm here to tell you that if you'll magnify the Lord, you'll make a big deal out of God. He's going to cheer you up. He's going to put a song in your heart. Like David, you can sit there and say, let us exalt 
His name forever. The second thing I see out of this psalm that happens when we magnify the Lord is that He calms the fearful. He calms the fearful. Look down with me at Psalm chapter 34 and verse 4. The Bible says, I sought the Lord and He heard me. And He delivered me from all my fears. Look back at 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 12. We see exactly what David was talking about. The Bible says, And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He had been captured by Achish. He had been put in some sort of a holding area and he was terrified that this king was going to have him executed the way he had executed uh, that, that giant Goliath. And in his time of fear, instead of turning to his own wisdom, he turned rather and he focused on God. And what did God do? God calmed his fear. He took his fear away. David then had a sound mind. A time alone with the Lord. And God gave him a brilliant plan to escape a situation where he should have died. It is reported that the newspaper counselor Ann Landers receives an average of 10,000 letters each month. And nearly all of them from people burdened with problems. Miss Landers was asked if there was any one of them which pre- predominates uh, throughout the letters she receives. And her reply was, one problem above all seems to be fear. Fear. People are afraid of losing their health, their wealth, their loved ones. People are afraid of life itself. Life itself. Some of you sitting here today and you're fearful about what's going to happen next. Despite what they say, 90% of the chronic patients who see today's physicians have one common symptom, uh, this, this article says. Their trouble did not start with a cough or chest pain or hyperacidity. In 90% of the cases, the first symptom was fear. This is the opinion of a well-known American internist as expressed in a roundtable discussion on psychosomatic medicine. This is also the consensus of a growing body of specialists. Fear of losing a job, a fear of old age, fear of being exposed sooner or later. This fear manifests itself as a clinical symptom. Sometimes the fear is nothing more than a superficial anxiety, but sometimes it is so deep-seated that the patient himself denies its existence and makes the round of doctor to doctor taking injections, hormones, tranquilizers, and tonics in an endless search for relief. Today I would ask you this, what is it that you're afraid of? What is it you're afraid of? You see, God has told us that He has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And if you're putting your focus on you and your abilities and what you can accomplish and how you can get out of a problem, what you're going to find is that you can't get out of every problem. But when you focus up on the Lord, you see, God, You are all-powerful. You are ever-caring. And You can deliver me out of any problem. Any problem whatsoever. The question today is this. Are you focusing and magnifying what you can't do? Or are you focusing and magnifying what He can do? What He can do. When we focus on God, He calms our fears. When we magnify the Lord... He calms our fears. Number three, He conserves the reverent. He conserves the reverent. Guys, in the summit, if you could turn these monitors right here off, they're buzzing at me. That would be a big help. 
Look down at verse 7 of Psalm 34. The Bible says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear Him and delivereth them. If you've ever wanted to know where there is a verse in the Bible that talks about a guardian angel, it's Psalm 34.7. The angel of the Lord campeth round about them that fear Him and delivereth them. Look back with me at 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 14. Again, remember in this situation, Achish should have had David executed. David was the most wanted man in Gath. And they had him, and they let him go. Why? Because there was a guardian angel watching David. The Bible says, Then said Achish unto his servant, Lo, ye see the man is mad. Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that ye may, uh, that, that, uh, ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Look at chapter 22 and verse 1. David therefore, de- de- therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Dullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. To him. They looked at David and they saw that uh, he appeared to be a madman and God put it in the heart of Achish to just let him walk free. I, I can imagine David as he comes out of the gate and he's walking toward his men that are hiding maybe in the bushes or hiding out. And as they see David, David's got this big grin on his face. This boyish, mischievous grin. And they're thinking, David, how did you get out of that? And he says, I acted like I was a nut and they let me go. Where did you come up with that idea? Well, I was talking with the Lord and He opened my heart and He showed me what to do. You know what David did was he feared God. He feared God. Some of you today might say, Pastor, I thought you said it was a bad idea to be fearful. Well, it is a bad idea to be fearful, but the question isn't, do you fear? It's, who do you fear? Do you fear what other people can do to you? Do you fear uh, the cause of debt collectors as they're looking for money that's past due? Uh, are you fearful that someone's going to come repossess a car or you're going to get fired from a job or a layoff? Is it fearful that your marriage is going to come to an end? Is it fearful that your children are going to grow up and rebel and run hog wild into sin? Is it fear that your health is never going to turn around or that your health may take a turn for the worse? Is it fear that a loved one who's going through a hard time isn't going to pull through? My friend, those are things we're not supposed to fear. We're supposed to fear God. We're supposed to fear God. You say, Pastor, how are we to fear God? Well, we revere Him. You look up at God and you see that He is awesome. You see that He's perfect. You see that He's all-powerful, all-ever-present and ever-knowing. And on top of that, He cares for you. And what happens is that when you can bask in that, When you can bathe in that knowledge, what you find is that He will conserve you mentally. He will conserve you spiritually. There's a story told about a young lady who was driving home from work one night. A young lady in her mid-twenties. Her car broke down on the bad side, on the wrong side of town. In order to get home, this was back before cell phones, she had to walk through a back alley where there were a bunch of rough and tumble single men just hanging out. It was late at night. She was totally defenseless. She climbed out of her car and she started down the alley. With a lip quivering and knees knocking, she began to pray and pray hard for God to protect her. 
She passed through the alley and she basically was ignored by all those rough customers that were sitting there. She got home that night and went to bed. The next morning when she woke up, she turned on the news. And she saw that those same men had been arrested for raping a woman in that same alley she had walked through just a few hours before. She was appalled. Why did they rape that girl and not even look at me? Her curiosity got the best of her, so she went down to the jailhouse to approach the men and ask why she had not been the one that was attacked. As she sat there on the other side of the glass, with a phone to her ear, looking at the man who could have raped her, she asked the man this question, Why didn't you touch me? And the man looked at her like she was crazy. He said, I saw you walk through the alley. But you had four big, strong men around you. I wasn't going to touch you. Are you crazy? You say, oh, pastor, that story's way out there. You know, there's biblical evidence that those kind of things happen. You remember the story of Elisha in the city? God had been telling Elisha the battle plans of the enemies of the Lord. And Elisha had been communicating to the generals of Israel. And they were outsmarting the enemies of the Lord at every turn. And then one morning Elisha wakes up and he goes and gets his cup of coffee. If I can, if I can bring the story into modern day. And he looks out his window with, with his servant there with him. And there is an army of men that have surrounded the city. And Elisha is just staring at him. Sipping on his coffee, yawning, wiping the sleepy out of his eyes, and his servant is panicking, running around. Whoa, we're gonna die! They're here to get us. They found out it's you. This is not good. And Elisha prays a simple prayer. He says, "Lord, will you open the eyes of my servant and let him to be able to see?" And God opened the eyes of that servant, and standing around the army of men there to get Elisha was an army of angels. An army of angels. You ever been in a spot where you wonder why you didn't get hurt worse than you did? Where it was almost like something supernaturally divine stepped in and helped you out? You ever been there? How many of you ever been there before? God's looking after you. How many of you here, God had to give you an extra special guardian angel because you really pushed the limits. (laughs) But He conserves... The reverend. You do your part about magnifying Him in your life. And He takes care of conserving you. Number four, we see He comforts the afflicted. He comforts the afflicted. Look down at verse 18 of Psalm 34. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. The Bible says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite Spirit. That word broken there means shatter, smash, or break. You have plans and they just don't work out. You have uh, that job that just seems to be going so well. Then you're called in and let go. You have a relationship that's going in a direction that looks good, it looks promising, and all of a sudden it falls apart. And your heart is broken. That word contrite there is even a more intense word than the word broken. 
The word contrite there means crushed into pieces. means despondent. Despondent. The Bible says there that the Lord is nigh. He's nigh unto them. It says He saveth such that be of a contrite spirit. I think of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7 where the Bible says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmaster. For I know their sorrows. Psalm chapter 56 and verse 8 says, Thou tellest my wonderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? If you're here today and you're broken hearted, I'm here to tell you that God catches every tear you cry. Every time you weep, He writes down the event, the occasion, occasion in a book. You say, if God's all-powerful, then why doesn't He keep the hurt away? Why, does he, why doesn't He keep the problem away? And I would say that it's because God loves you, He allows hurt to come into your life. I'm a father. I've got a little boy who's seven and a little girl who's six, Matthew and April. Sometimes what's best for Matthew is to let him go through a trial. And not step in and intervene. When I say a trial, I mean maybe he's not getting along with someone. Not step in and intervene, but rather to coach him up to learn how to get through it. And not always run and get in the face of the child or that parent of that child. But rather to let him work his way through. You know, God loved David so much that He allowed David to be chased all over the place. As David was being chased by Saul all throughout the wilderness, in a cave and under through Dale and and, in all the valleys and all the different places David went, there were times where David would lay in bed at night in a cave or maybe staring up the stars and say, God, where are you? Have you forgotten about me? It was Samuel that anointed me to be king and I'm running as a fugitive from laws I didn't break. They're trying to kill me. Where are you, God? And I imagine God looked down at David and He said, David, I'm right here. David, you've got to go through this because these experiences will shape you into the man that I want you to be so that with a humble heart, you will lead my country. You will be the king that I want you to be. Do you know how much self-restraint it takes for God to stand by Why one of the children, his children that he loves, goes through hurt and pain. I think of the story of Jesus as he approached Lazarus' grave. You see, Jesus had stalled and allowed Lazarus to die. And he had done that on purpose. David shows up to Bethany. Martha being the active one, the doer. She runs out to the Lord. Where were you? Had you been here? My brother hadn't died. Wouldn't have died. You could have healed him. Jesus engages her in an intellectual conversation to settle her down. But out comes tender-hearted, sensitive Mary. Mary comes to the feet of Jesus. And instead of yelling at Him, she just crumbles at His feet. From her knees, John 11 tells us, she says to God with tears in her eyes, She says, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
And then we get John 11.35, which says this. It says, Jesus wept. You know why Jesus wept? He didn't weep because Lazarus was dead, because just a few minutes later, Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. He wept because he knew that Mary and Martha were hurting, but the hurt was necessary. I'm here today to tell you that if you're afflicted by a problem, you feel like you're being chased through a wilderness of problems in your life right now and you wonder where God is, I'm here to tell you today to magnify Him, lift Him up, hold Him high in your life and He will comfort your afflicted heart. Number five, we see this. We see He cleanses the trusting. He cleanses the trusting. Look down with me at verse 22 of Psalm 34. It says there, The Lord redeemeth, He redeemeth the soul of the servants. And none of them that trust in Him shall be desolate. None of them that trust in, or, and, and none of them that trust in Him shall be desolate or shall be left out in the, in the dark. I love the word redeemeth. It, include, it involves giving a second chance. It involves washing away sins or, or, or laying, leaving the past in the past and redeeming or cleansing, making anew. And I love the fact that in the Old Testament, you get a New Testament word in the word redeemeth. Why did David need to be redeemed? You remember back at the beginning of the sermon? He runs to the high priest. He tells four lies in just a few sentences. His lies lead to Ahimelech's death and all of the men. Eighty-five priests died because in part of his lies. He runs to the land of Gath, which is the last place on earth he should have gone. And he almost gets himself killed. And then he turns to the Lord and the Lord bails him out. In that bailing out, David writes here in the 34th Psalm, he said, he redeems, he redeems the soul of the servant. Let me ask you a question today. Why is it that you need to be redeemed? It's easy to look at David and say, David, what were you thinking? Can I tell you that you and I are guilty of sin just the same? Say, oh, I'm not that bad of a sinner. Really? Really? Do you realize how much all of us sin every single day? Say, oh, I'm a pretty good person. The Bible says if you've broken at one point, you've broken the whole law. So I've never killed anybody. You ever had hatred in your heart towards someone? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that that is on the same level as murder. You ever looked and lusted after someone that wasn't your spouse? The Bible says you're guilty of committing adultery. The Bible says this, there is none righteous, none righteous, no not one. We are all guilty of sin. We all need to be redeemed or cleansed. What did David need to understand before he was qualified to be redeemed? Well, we get the answer there in verse 22. The, Lord, the Bible says, The Lord redeemeth the soul of His servants. For a while, David tried to do things on his own. And it got him in a mess. And he turned and looked up to the Lord and he said, You're my Lord, I'm your servant. You tell me what to do. And when that was his attitude... He magnified the Lord in that moment He was redeemed. On April 8, 1988, as a small boy, I bowed my head. I acknowledged in my prayer to the Lord that I was a sinner. And that my sin had defiled 
my soul and had separated me from a holy God. I understood that my sin had qualified me to go to hell. That day I bowed my head and I prayed a very simple prayer. I said, Dear Lord Jesus, I need your redemption. I need my sins to be washed away by the blood that your Son shed on the cross for me. Will you come in my heart and my life and forgive me and give me a home when I die? That day I became a servant of the Lord. I became part of God's team. He adopted me into His family. He made me an heir to His throne, joint heirs with Christ. That day I was redeemed. And I'm here today to tell you that if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you just simply have to believe and receive. Believe and receive that gift of salvation. There's another quick application I'd like to make here this morning. Out of this point, and it's simply this, is that you need to keep a short account with God. You see, when we get saved, we have a relationship with God that never gets broken. I've got a little boy I mentioned earlier named Matthew. If I go home today and Matthew lies to me and then throws a fit, a fit uh, and, and throws himself on the floor, kicking and screaming, I don't expect him to do that, but if he did, I'm not going to pick him up by his ear and kick him out of the house and say, you can't be my son anymore. The truth is, Matthew will always be my son. That relationship can never be broken. But fellowship can. Fellowship can. Some of you came into church today and your fellowship with God has been broken because of sin in your life. Oh, you're still His child because He adopted you into His family the day you got saved. But fellowship is broken. If you come to Him as His servant, He will not leave you desolate. He'll forgive you. He'll redeem you. He will allow that fellowship to be restored. Is your life a mess? Is it because you've been magnifying yourself? Is it time to start magnifying God on another level in your life? Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning.